Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here on a sunny morning in Wiltshire. Bit cold, mind you. Hello, it's Richard Heller. It's a pretty grey morning in south-east London. Today we are talking about the United States. The United States is a paradise lost for cricket, but perhaps soon it will be paradise regained. And uh, someone who can tell us about that is our guest today. He's the American sports journalist Peter de la Pena. Peter wrote a fascinating fly-on-the-wall book called Inside the Selection Room. It's about the dreams of young American cricketers hoping to be selected for T20 international careers. But he's reported the ups and downs of American cricket for many years, especially for Wisden Cricketers' Almanac. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for joining us. Perhaps you'd like to tell us first where you're joining us from. Joining you originally from across the Atlantic, but yes, actually right right in England, a bit further up north in, in Manchester at the moment. My wife, for those of you who don't know, is British, so I've got some roots now planted in England, and because of the pandemic, I haven't been back into the U.S. now for almost a full year. I, I had it intended to spend most of the summer, like I usually do, in the U.S. reporting on all things cricket that's happening in, in America throughout the summer. But like everywhere else in the world, that kind of went awry in March. And so, yeah, it's... What um, better place for a cricket reporter to find himself than the home of Sir Neville Cardus? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There you go. I'm, I'm just a stone's throw from Old Trafford. And I, uh, I'm, I'm actually technically, if I want to be proper, because... Everybody's very territorial in the UK from, from what I've discovered over my years living here. I'm technically in Salford. I'm right across Ooh, the that's canal. Very different. Mm. I'm, I'm, very, uh, I'm right across the canal from Media City. I read two big American cricket stories just recently. First about the giant cricket stadium to be created out of a former minor league baseball stadium in a very American-sounding place, Prairie Central near Dallas. What can you tell us about that and who are Major League Cricket and its promoters and the people behind it? I think the question you just asked is a question that a lot of people are asking, both in the U.S. and around the world. Who are Major League Cricket? What, what are they doing? Who are these people? And I think it's a question that, that a lot of people are still kind of waiting to be answered. It's a very nebulous topic of sorts. They're a group of investors that are primarily led by two guys who piloted a television network called Lolo TV that was started in California about 20, 25 odd years ago. And it's, it's basically the primary outlet for cricket viewing in the U.S. It, it started as a web platform. So it was kind of how Crick Info itself started. People outside of the U.S. wouldn't necessarily understand or, or realize how much of a thriving underground community cricket is in the u.s if you weren't looking for if you didn't know it existed you'd have no clue cricket is all around you but if if you know where to look you can find cricket basically in all 50 states and that's because of of the thriving expat population so these uh, two guys uh, samir Mehta and vijay srinivasan started the willow network initially as a streaming platform to satisfy all these expats who were desperate for a cricket access platform to watch anything and that, that starts with ashes tours to world cups t20 world cups 
India Tours, whatever, they've they've basically got the monopoly on rights content for the U.S. market. And that then mushroomed into a TV channel that you could get on terrestrial cable through your Comcast uh, package or Time Warner cable or any other service. And so it's become quite a successful venture for them. And they sold it off to the Times of India. And, and basically, you know, from the money they've gotten from that, they've now parlayed that into trying to be the latest in a long line of people who have attempted to try and start up what they see as this pot of gold in the U.S. cricket rainbow uh, to, to try and launch a, a T20 professional league. And there's been a lot of previous ventures that have failed. And they're hoping to be the ones that finally uh, crack through to the other side and, and get something that actually is sustainable for an extended period of time. Well, you're certainly right that cricket is played all over the United States. I played it years ago. I walked into the nearest park to my grandmother's house in, um, that was Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And the first thing I saw about 40 years ago was a pickup cricket match played by a lot of West Indians. So I joined in. And Peter and I did a, I think it was 25 years ago, did a coast-to-coast tour of the United States and found a lot of cricket being played, a lot of cricket to a, a very high standard. A lot of the investors in Major League Cricket seem to be of Indian extraction. Uh, the one exception I noticed being the son of Ross Perot, former presidential candidate. Is um, American cricket now very much an outcrop of, has it got any relationship with Indian cricket and the IPL? I, well, uh, first on the Ross Perot point, how did he get roped in? Well, his partner through his uh, venture capital business is Indian or in, in, Indian American. So that's that that's kind of how he got roped in. Otherwise, I, I'm not sure if, if that would have been the case, because if you look at the rest of the list of investors, yeah, it's it's uh, heavily dominated by South Asian businessmen or, or South Asian expats in the U.S., um, one of the most prominent names is Satya Nadella with Microsoft. But, um, you know, just like the investors that are listed, it's it's a heavily, heavily South Asian dominated game now uh, in the U.S. at an amateur level and now at a, at a burgeoning professional level. Back about 40, 50 years ago, it was more West Indian dominated. You mentioned Prospect Park in Brooklyn and uh, me growing up in New Jersey, like I said, I didn't really notice cricket was all around me growing up in northern New Jersey. But when I finally did discover it and then when I came back from a semester abroad in Australia during the 2005 Ashes, when I discovered cricket and I went around New York, New Jersey and places like Newark and Bloomfield and, and uh, Montclair, there's a huge West Indian population in, in northern New Jersey that is playing the game in lots of parks around Newark and uh, Nutley and East Orange and, and Bloomfield in that area. And then, yeah, you go across the Hudson River in New York and in Brooklyn, you've got Marine Park. You've got what now has, has the name has changed a bunch of times, but it's basically there's a couple of grounds. Idlewild Park right behind JFK Airport. Idlewild used to be the name of JFK Airport uh, for the for people who are younger listeners to this podcast. <laughs> uh, and um, there's, there's a park. It, it, it's alternating between called uh, 223rd and Idlewild uh, just because it's at 223rd Street and you see planes landing and taking off all day long if you stay for a cricket match out there at JFK. There's uh, Floyd Bennett Fields, which is an abandoned uh, military airfield kind of at the tip of Brooklyn that has has hosted 
West Indies 11s back about 15 years ago. Brian Lara and Chris Gale and Chandler Paul and a couple other guys were part of West Indies 11 that came and played in New York against USA 11. But that kind of is starting to fade away. That West Indian kind of centric demographic that used to dominate New York and, and really U.S. cricket in general. If you think about the Gladstone Dainty Letter Administration, I got a lot of notoriety in U.S. <laughs> cricket over the last 20 years or so. Wonderful um, name. That's, that's, w- yeah. Wonderful name, Gladstone Dainty. Is, <laughs> is. is he still around? Is he still um... I I think his shadow will always linger for quite some time in U.S. cricket. He's not around per se at the moment, but his his legacy is is hard to be forgotten, uh, for for better or worse. But but yeah, that that has has quite um, rapidly shifted to a South Asian demographic. So when you talk about IPL influence or Indian investor influence, that the the Kolkata Knight Riders Group is a headline investor in this major league cricket initiative so you've got you know big influence from ipl and just from indian cricket marketing in general trying to now dip their their toes in the water in in u.s cricket in that way with this new league so that all these things kind of are 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 indications of the rapidly changing demographic in in u.s cricket and and how that could potentially shape the future going forward Peter, tell us how many uh, cricket teams, real ones, there are. How many cricket players? You know, what is the the, the magnitude of, of cricket in, in 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 America? Well, this is a hot topic. <laughs> what what is the actual number? This is actually something that that's um, going through quite a debate currently administratively in the U.S. with membership process uh, that they're trying to restructure and, and change the constitution in the U.S. because they can't actually get a proper number in in order. And this was a, a major issue during the USACA administration as well under Gladstone Dainty that um, you hear all sorts of numbers. And I don't know if any of them are actually true. You hear, you hear that one of my favorites that constantly gets thrown around is 15 million cricket fans, 15 to 20 million cricket fans all over America love cricket and uh, 20,000 cricket players. And I hear sometimes 100,000 cricket players and I sometimes hear 200,000 cricket players. And when you hear the kinds of investors who are getting involved, oh my God, well, it's because there's so much interest in cricket. You hear all these things about these big numbers and big interest in the cricket community um, from expats. Well, if that's all the case, if, if that's actually true, okay, then why does USA Cricket, the governing body, only have officially 725 registered members nationwide? A member being an individual or a club? An individual person. And, and those persons can be part of clubs. Okay. But if you've got thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of cricketers nationwide, why don't any of them want to be pledging their allegiance in any way, shape, or form to the national governing body. And that's that's a huge problem that USACA had before they were expelled. And it was one of the reasons why they were expelled for people who uh, have not followed the ins and outs of, of why they were suspended and expelled. One of the chief reasons that the ICC gave in 2015 when they were suspended for the third and final time before they were expelled in 2017 was that the ICC claimed through a their own membership audit was that USACA did not represent the majority of the cricket community. And before suspension, USACA had 47 member leagues nationwide leading into their 2012 elections. And then they disenfranchised 32 out of those 47 member leagues through a controversial uh, process. 
Uh, it's another story for another day. But the point is they went from 30, basically 47 leagues down to, to 15 leagues through disenfranchisement. And you said ICC ran their own audit and said, well, through our interview process and discovery process and research, we found there's more than 130 leagues across the country. USACA doesn't represent the majority of the cricket players in leagues in this country. We're going to suspend them. They expel them. And when we reform a new governing body, they said, we want that new governing body to represent and to bring together and unite the cricket community. That was the specific phrasing was, we want a, a governing body that unites the cricket community. Now, how can you claim three years later from 2017, after that ex expulsion and, and readmission mandate, that this new governing body has actually succeeded in uniting the cricket community, Peter, if their membership numbers are actually a fraction of the reported numbers that USACA had. At USACA, when they were expelled, their last reported membership numbers were around 15,000. So to go from 15,000, and that includes individual players who are members of clubs, who are uh, part of clubs and leagues that are registered with USACA, if you go from 15,000 to 732 or 725 people, whatever the exact number is, how does that qualify as uniting the cricket community under new leadership? That doesn't quite add up for me. It doesn't quite add up for a lot of people. And that's one of the things that is a red flag. To sum up what you're saying there, Peter, in very simple terms, uh, it sounds like the American cricket administration is a total and utter disgrace and a shambles. Is that a fair comment? Those are uh, two two words of many that can be used to describe it. <laughs> I mean, it makes it makes Boris Johnson's government look like a sort of model of efficiency, competence, and integrity. I might, yes. put that, I might put that a little, very, very slightly more diplomatically, um, <laughs> since you do have to report these people. Um, yes. Peter, American um, sport generally is extremely structured, isn't it? I mean, there is um, there are structures that sort of regulate sporting lives, you know, right from, you know, from, from junior leagues, from little leagues in baseball, right through to, you know, schools and colleges. You've got the the draft system in many sports provides, an, you know, a, a pathway for, um, you know, for people to become professional. Does that exist? Has that ever existed in American cricket? Does it exist now? I get into this discussion with a lot of people, mostly people who are new to cricket from a traditional American background. And this is one of the things that always baffles us. Growing up, you are accustomed to Things we take for granted, I guess. Uh, <laughs> going off of what Peter said, all the adjectives he used to describe <laughs> the, the, the contrasts and comparisons between the UK government and, and US cricket, we take for granted. Growing up, I played peewee ice hockey. That was my primary sport uh, for the longest time in, in my youth. But I played peewee ice hockey. I played Little League Baseball for a long time. I played youth tennis for quite an extended period of time as well. That was the, the sport I actually stuck with longest going through high school, played varsity tennis through high school. But all these sports, and, and you could go through CYO basketball or you know, Pop Warner football, all the youth uh, and, and PIL, police athletic league sports, youth sports, uh, AAU sports, all these sports, you're just taking it for granted that it's going to be well-organized. Essentially, it's going to run itself. It's a very streamlined process. You sign up with your local town youth rec league to get involved initially. You play your 
organized youth sports teams. And then that funnels you basically. And when you get to high school age, your high schools have representative teams and you go and play for your high school. And if you're good enough on that path, you get a, a college scholarship and you can get an NCAA you know, full ride to go play college basketball, college football, whatever. And it's, it's just a natural thing. And there is, there is no kind of process per se with, with cricket, youth cricket in particular, the, the pathway is it's almost impossible to define. How do you advance? Where do you go? Where do you start? is is just uh, a, again a fundamental issue that most other sports don't encounter is something as silly as where would you go if you wanted to register for your local club or local team that's just a very straightforward thing in in little league baseball or, or ice hockey whatever i can remember from my youth you, you would just go to the town library or the town police station and they would have a weekend or a couple of weekends where they would be organizing signups you show up with your birth certificate and your parent writes a check and you sign up and you're assigned to a team and you get a, a volunteer coach and there's volunteers galore. This is a, a big issue. Volunteers galore. You've got, you've got more volunteers than you know what to do with and you're off and running. U.S. cricket, uh, part of the issue that it struggles with with regards to organization at a grassroots level is a lack of volunteers compared to other sports. Everybody's out to make a quick buck. You can see that in... All the failed ventures to start these pop-up T20 leagues over the last two decades. Everybody's got dollar signs in their eyes when they see U.S. cricket. They see it as the last frontier. Everybody's out to make a quick buck. You cannot find volunteers. You cannot. I mean, if I compare it to the U.K. cricket culture, again, one of the things I enjoy most about club cricket in Manchester or club cricket elsewhere where I played in the U.K., my, my initial experiences were in Hertfordshire back in 2008, was um, the volunteer uh, aspect of, of it. Uh, the club I was with in 2008, Hartford Cricket Club in Hertfordshire, we were the featured club for the NatWest Cricket Force that year. So we had Mike Gadding, Devin Malcolm, Charlotte Edwards, Robbie Bopara came out and got their hands dirty, helping out, fixing up the club, doing all sorts of projects on the NatWest Cricket Force Day. And it was Good, not just you know they did a couple of cricket related things with with the kids at the club, but it was encouraging to see these icons of the game actually picking up a paintbrush and painting the side screens. And Mike Adding was laying the cement uh, tiles for the new deck that the club was was doing. And um, he didn't prepare the tea, did he? <laughs> no, he didn't do that. <laughs> that would have been but, a dangerous. That would have been a dangerous, uh, no, <laughs> a dangerous but, place. Yeah. But nobody was too big, okay? Mm. Nobody had. Nobody was too too big and too special to do these kind of things. Everybody pitched in, and in U.S. cricket, I don't know if if you guys have have encountered this in your uh, trip across America or any other experiences you have in U.S. cricket. It's an incredibly uh, incredibly discouraging experience. Uh, just from a volunteer perspective, you cannot find people willing to scorekeep. It's hard to find people who are willing to umpire. So most matches, the, the players score themselves and you get into these arguments and fights. And quite often there's stories of people, you know, police being called to grounds and fights breaking out, literal fist fights breaking out because you don't have any volunteers scoring. So it's up to the players themselves to score. And then, you know, the, the team in the field doesn't have anybody as a volunteer scorekeeper. So they're accusing the team who's batting of cheating and, and adding um, ghost runs to the scorecard. And, um, you know, just, just um, 
things like coming to the ground early to set up the boundary cones or you have matting wickets, artificial wickets in most places in the U.S. That requires at least four or five guys to come to the ground early and, and roll out the mat and nail the mat in. What happens in the U.S.? The culture is I want to do the least responsible. I want to I want to show up last. I want to um, open the bowling and then when we chase, I want to open the batting. And as soon as I get out, I want to go home. And I don't even want to stay to the end of the match to see my teammates bat and ball or, or do anything else. This is uh, this is like basically U.S. capitalism we're talking about. And the culture <laughs> of uh, individual selfishness and um, lack of community spirit, which the country has been has fostered internationally, isn't it? Well, well, I disagree. Because no, I've, I've never experienced these things in other sports. When, when, when I've played other sports growing up, People show up early. You ask them to show up an hour and a half beforehand to to set things up and at a field or, you know, whether it was literally baseball, somebody had to paint the lines or, or chalk the lines for the baselines before the game and and rake the field to get the infield ready. Basic stuff. But, you know, people showed up and people did it. People took responsibility Ten- at the tennis club I grew up at, you know, sweeping the courts. It was a clay court or a hard true clay court. So you had to sweep the courts before and after you were done with them. I was a groundsman at my club as a teenager. That was my fir- very first job in life. Uh, so as a 14-year-old, I had to get up at 6 a.m. and, and, and um, get the, the hard you know, steamroller out and roll the courts to pack the clay down. Requires somebody to, to do that, those kind of things, to pitch in. And then at nighttime, I had to um, go, c- come back to the courts at 10 o'clock at shutdown to turn on the sprinkler system to water the courts to make sure that the, the clay got enough water to, to make sure it remained held its consistency or whatever and you know it didn't require extra funds to replace the clay throughout the summer all these kind of things cricket cricket you know matches will start an hour and a half late because instead of for an 11 o'clock match instead of having people show up at 9 30 to get the field ready i'm hoping my 11 my nine or ten other teammates show up and do the work for me and i hope they show up at 9 30 so I can show up at 11 o'clock and just walk straight onto the field without a warm-up. And what happens? Everybody's looking at each other to do the work for them. Nobody shows up for 9.30. Everybody shows up at 11 a.m. And then it's, oh, geez, we got to uh, – now I have to do it? Oh, that, damn it, you know. And then the match starts at 12.30 instead of 11 o'clock. It's, it's, um, that kind of sums up the lack of volunteerism in U.S. cricket, and that's a huge issue. Peter's teams and mine have um... – Sometimes suffered from that attitude, so it's sort of in England, so it's quite you know it's quite familiar. But um, you know, I, I, I'm with you on on as you know, certainly as an ex-American, there's uh, there's an enormous amount of voluntarism in American life in all in all walks of American life, and um, sometimes it's it's really quite intrusive. You know, some some volunteer <laughs> will often do something for you that you really don't, just don't want, but. It does seem, from what you're saying, as though it's um, it's bypassed cricket, that spirit. And I wonder if it's to do with the fact that cricket has moved from being a mainstream sport to being a minority one that perhaps attracts, you know, individualistic people, even, dare I say it, selfish people. And um, the, uh, some of that sort of quirkiness comes over in that great novel Netherland, where, um, you know, the protagonists are very individualistic people. Well, there's a couple of points to touch on this. Staten Island Cricket Club, which is kind of a, a focal point of the book. And Joseph O'Neill, the author, is a great guy. Met him before. I had a lovely chat with him. I played against Staten Island Cricket Club um, in, in the local league I used to be a part of. And um, Staten Island Cricket Club, and there's a few other cricket clubs 
in kind of the New York area, especially in Philadelphia, I would say. And I've encountered it maybe a few places on the West Coast. Hollywood Cricket Club would certainly be an example of this, mm. which I would kind of classify as legacy clubs in the sense that these are clubs that have very, very deep roots. Staten Island Cricket Club has, has been around for more than 120, 130 years. Hollywood Cricket Club has been around, I think, 90 years now. The clubs in Philadelphia, Marion, Philadelphia mm. Cricket Club, Haverford, they've all been around 100 plus years. Those legacy cricket clubs are part of the fabric of the community. And so there is still an element of volunteerism because the players there have roots. Okay. They, once they join the club, they're basically there for life. Uh, whether they grew up there in previous generations or some of the, the, the more modern players who have migrated, found that club, joined them, um, Clarence Modest, who's who's an icon with Staten Island Cricket Club, uh, is in his 80s now. Um, but he's he basically joined that club when he moved to the U.S. in the 1960s from Trinidad, and he's been there forever. He, he's an institution, and you talk to him and you hear stories about Staten Island hosting boycott and other players. Uh, Clyde, I want to say Clyde Walcott. I can't remember. There's been a, a number of West Indies who've come through there. Sobers has come through there. Well, he's been there. And then prior to that, Staten Island Cricket Club famously hosted Bradman, has hosted W.G. Grace, all that kind of stuff. They, they hosted us. <laughs> yeah, they, they hosted you. Uh, yep. uh, you know, but those clubs, uh, yeah, the legacy clubs, you go there, they have a pavilion, okay? They have a place to host people. It feels like a community environment. It feels like a welcoming place. And, and even from a very, it sounds so simple to a lot of people. Again, it's something you take for granted. What is, what is the club called? It's called Staten Island Cricket Club, or in Philadelphia, Philadelphia Cricket Club, Marion Cricket Club, Haverford Cricket Club. The overwhelming number of cricket clubs and leagues that start up now, you don't have roots planted. The, the overwhelming majority of players are, by and large, I would say transient people. There are a lot of people, especially from the South Asian community, who, who are just coming through on work visas. They might only be living there for one or two or three years. They're not intended to, to stay there for that long. So there's no, there's no uh, great overwhelming urge to really enmesh yourselves in the local community and really engage with the local community and, and really plant roots and leave roots and, and encourage other people in the local community to, to turn out and encourage that aspect of volunteerism we touched on before and just feel like you're part of something in your community. And, and as a byproduct of that, instead of getting clubs named Staten Island Cricket Club or Philadelphia Cricket Club or Marion Cricket Club, what are a lot of the clubs in the newly forming leagues called? You'll get Punjab 11. You'll get Guyana 11 you'll get the Tamil 11, you'll get Wanderers 11 or, or Melbourne 11, Melbourne named after the Jamaica Cricket Club. You'll get South Gujarat 11. Uh, and, and a lot of these teams are, are, na are names of, of clubs. You'll get Montego, Montego Bay 11. And these are, these are names I'm just uh, off the top of my head of, of clubs in New York and New Jersey. So um, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, if, if you want to identify with a place of your heritage and in, in where you, you came from and, and you want to kind of connect with that and establish that as your identity for your cricket club that you're forming, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Okay, if, if that's what you want to embrace, 
and that's how you feel um, you're going to be most effective at organizing a team and having a common bond with players that you're trying to recruit. Good for you. But at the same time, that's not a very effective strategy to engage with the community you're in in New York, New Jersey, if you're naming your cricket club South Gujarat 11 instead of Parsippany 11 or Secaucus uh, Cricket Club or East Rutherford Cricket Club or uh, Richmond Hill Cricket Club or um, Ozone Park Cricket Club. In, in, you know, if you're not if you're not taking up any of those names and instead you're you're naming it Burbeast Cricket Club or you know Port of Spain Cricket Club or Queens Park Cricket Club of New York, that's not going to be something that really really registers with the local community. And again, that's it sounds like a simple thing, but that's something that is a major major psychological obstacle. I feel and and a barrier that's created between the expat community that has overwhelmingly dominated cricket in the U.S. in recent times, and makes it a huge barrier to try and break through that barrier and kind of achieve that long-standing goal that U.S. cricket administrators keep talking about of of making it a mainstream sport. It's so fascinating uh, and a little bit heartbreaking what you're saying, Peter. So do the, say, the West Indians and the Indian leagues play together, engage, play matches against each other? It's very, very rare to encounter that in U.S. cricket. I can count on one hand the number of clubs that I would characterize as, say, cosmopolitan clubs where you've got a mix of players from India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, but also Jamaica, Guyana, Barbados, America. Uh, <laughs> that's that. In my experience, that's that's actually the most welcoming environment. If you can find a club that is cosmopolitan like that, if you're an American looking to get into the game, that's generally the type of club that will be welcoming and will give you an opportunity to play. Otherwise, if if you find a club that's very, for lack of a better word, segregated along ethnic lines where the team name is called Punjab 11 or South Gujarat 11. And you will find clubs to be in the club. You have every single player in the club is named Patel. None of them are related Mm -hmm. or every single name in in the club is shot. None of them are related, but because they want to really, really embrace and hold on to that, um, ethnic identity, they really don't accept um, players from outside that that cultural uh, tie-in. So that leads to uh, rivalries, uh, sometimes healthy rivalries, sometimes not so healthy, in terms of uh, establishing a cricket culture around the U.S. Where yeah, it goes from at at club level, and then it goes on to league level, where. In New York City itself, you've got, I think, up to eight or nine leagues now. You've got the Commonwealth League, the Metropolitan League, which are longstanding leagues that have been around for 50 years plus. But one of the relatively new leagues that was established is the New York Bangladeshi League. Hmm. Nothing but Bangladeshi people in the league, <laughs> Bangladeshi immigrants in the league. You've got in, in Atlanta, you've got the Atlanta Georgia Cricket Conference, which, uh, you know, if you think of a city, you would think, oh, a city should have one league or you'd think, there's only, you know, a, a necessity to have one league in the city. Well, you've got the Atlanta, Georgia uh, uh, Cricket Conference, which is predominantly essentially a, a South Asian player league. And then you've got the Georgia Supreme Cricket League in, in and around Atlanta, which is all 
basically West Indian players and they don't mix, they don't mingle. Um, you've got in New Jersey, another good example, the Garden State League, almost entirely West Indian, West Indian administratively, West Indian from a player standpoint. So what you're saying is that, you know, far from being far from being the great melting pot, which America <laughs> famously is, it's the opposite. Uh, and is this why you one of the kind of structural reasons why you can't get a U.S. cricketing identity? Well, I mean, you touched on it in a, in a utopian U.S. cricket climate. You would have the melting pot. OK, all these cultures would come together and it would be uh, emblematic of all the other sports where you've got players from all sorts of backgrounds. What You know, e- even the NBA now you, you had in recent years, maybe five, six, seven years ago now, you had the emergence of Jeremy Lin, which is, was a huge phenomenon at the time. Lin Sanity in New York City when he broke out with the Knicks and um, helped get them into the playoffs. The, the, the first Asian-American, as in Chinese Asian-American basketball star, per se, in the NBA. Uh, and you've, you've got all these players from all these other cultural and ethnic backgrounds that have emerged in the NBA for years. And this was, this was a real big breakthrough. But you, you don't have that, that melting pot, per se, in, in U.S. cricket, where you, you've got players from, from all cultures as a cross-section of, of life in the U.S. It's, again, it's predominantly a South Asian and, and West Indian game. And those divisions are really encouraged, not just at adult level, but even at youth level. One of, one of the most alarming things, from my perspective, that I saw in recent times, in New York City, you've got a thriving one of the, the rare places in the U.S. where you have actually a thriving youth cricket community, in part because of the New York Public Schools Athletic League. It's the only high school cricket league in the country. Started off with, I think, 14 teams back in 2008 or 2009. And now they've got more than 30 teams. It's, it's almost tripled in size in, in the space of a decade. So they've really done well to encourage the growth, encourage more kids to sign up and get involved. But they used to do a... At the end of the year, they used to do a high school all-star game, like all the other uh, PSAL sports do. And traditionally, it would be done along borough lines, like all the other sports. So you would have the Queens All-Stars versus the, Bro- the Bronx All-Stars and the Manhattan All-Stars and the, and the Staten Island All-Stars. And all the boroughs would, would face up against each other. And again, that encourages a bond with your local community. And initially the PSL administrators and the people who were in charge of cricket in the PSL did the same thing. You would have the Queens all-star team made up of kids from John Adams high school against kids from the Brooklyn all-stars of, of the best kids from the Brooklyn high schools within the league, whatever. And then for some reason, and I, I can't, I don't think this was necessarily PSAL sanctioned, but essentially people who were involved with PSAL outside of the high school cricket season in the summertime were trying to keep kids involved and make sure they had opportunities to keep playing and developing at a junior cricket level instead of just just playing against adults and so what did they do they called for tryouts for players and they were going to organize the south asian under 1911 against the west indian under 1911 is what they called it and there was a mother of a kid whose son was Irish. She, she is Irish-American. Her son is Irish-American. He was a very good player. And she's saying, well, hang on a second. My kid wants to play in this under-19 also game too. He's not, he's not West Indian-American. He's not South Asian-American. So if he wants to play, where does he get to play? And it was a case of, 
oh, well, we'll make an exception. Like, if he's good enough, we'll, we'll, we'll battle for him. And, and, you know, one of the two teams will, will try and recruit him, whatever. But that wasn't the point. She's mm-hmm. saying this is a terrible example to set. From an early age, you are encouraging these divisions along ethnic lines from a very early age. And you're ingraining it uh, in, in their minds from their teenage years that they should be battling against these different ethnic lines um, rather than encouraging, you know, a New York versus a New, a New Jersey under 19 All-Stars, or, or again, a Brook, Brooklyn versus Bronx, Bronx versus Queens, whatever. And that, again, underscores the overall struggle to break through to the mainstream. And this is something I've encountered. This is something that his mother encountered. You know, if, you, if you're outside of one of these communities, even, even if you're from a different expatriate group, you know, forget it. Forget the kids who have been born and brought up in the U.S. Um, if you're a South African uh, expatriate or South African second generation, what hope do you have of, of of getting a chance to get involved, or English or Australian, whatever, or or Zimbabwean, whatever? If if this is how things are structured at a local level, regional level, national level, both playing wise and administratively, and um, tell me, will um. Is there any hope with your wonderful new uh, vice president, Kamala Harris, because she comes from a cricketing background? Doesn't well, she's, she? she may do. She's half, and she's half Jamaican, half Indian by origin. If she turned out to have a cricketing background, would um, could that make any difference to, um, to uh, American cricket? And might she be in a position to knock heads together? Well, she, she's got the dual heritage, so maybe she's she's the messiah to unite the, the different factions if if she's like any other politician richard if there are, are votes to be tv1 and votes to be gained by helping out the cricket community then i'm sure kamala harris will be first on the spot to help the cricket community but if 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 there's not votes to be gained from a constituency i'm not sure how involved she will be because to be honest as active as cricket is in northern california I've never once heard anybody mention her as being involved or appearing or contributing in any way, shape, or form to cricket initiatives out in the Bay Area. So at the moment, despite her roots, I don't think she's somebody who would necessarily be anyone that the cricket community is pinning their hopes on to rally rally the troops together. Well, that's a shame, yeah. Peter, we were talking, uh, touched earlier on about the legacy uh, clubs in American cricket. And of course, one of the things which really moves you if you're a cricket lover is the very rich cricketing legacy which uh, America has. You know, for more than half of American history, cricket was the dominant uh, summer sport in the United States. Indeed, the first match ever played, uh, international match, was USA versus Canada, you know, and the, 1859 was the first English overseas tour to the United States, um, a huge long long time ago, including John Wisdom. Um, and the early USA was mainly, was full of cricketers. What went wrong? Because let's face it, baseball is, is nowhere near as good a game. It's a sort of hopeless <laughs> game. Uh, well, there's a number of factors. I believe the most influential in terms of USA really being set back at an international level 
was the Imperial Cricket Conference at the time, as it was called, not really allowing or welcoming or administering test status to USA back in the early part of the 20th century. Yeah, it was 1909 when the Imperial Cricket Conference was a tripartite structure involving England, um, Australia and South Africa. But all, and you had to be a member, well, as the name shows, the, uh, a, a member of the empire. Yes. And um, uh, Roland Bowen, it's very fascinating to hear you that. Roland Bowen in his uh, classic history of uh, cricket written more than 50 years ago makes that point. Yeah, a lot of people will talk about the Civil War and, and how cricket was too long to be played in between battles on the battlefields and baseball was more efficient to pick up and, and get over with uh, and how kind of the Civil War had an impact on on that. And once baseball started to take off and, and there's discussions on how uh, the American identity and people wanting to kind of separate themselves from uh, colonialism and how America really embraced baseball because it was more according of, to that thesis, cricket was was particularly strong in the in the slave owning South Southern states, wasn't it? There's you know there's that aspect to it. Um, there's there's a number of reasons uh, centered around the Civil War and coming out of the Civil War. But for me, when I look through the history, to me, I feel like the the ICC Imperial Cricket Conference decision to not allow and embrace USA just simply by virtue of the fact that they were no longer a Commonwealth country. I think that was the most influential aspect of America's decline in cricket, because at the time, again, we talked about before, you would have touring squads come to the U S quite regularly, come to New York, come to Philadelphia, go to California. You had WG Grace come, you had Bradman come, you had Ranjit Sinji come. WG Grace went to, when did W.G. Grace go to the States? He, well, he came to Staten Island Cricket Club. So uh, um, I, I don't remember the exact year, but I know that, he, that was one of the places he, he mm, toured through mm. in the late you know, 1890s, 1900s, whatever time it was. But that was the caliber of player. I mean, the, there was a competitiveness and a demand for that, that um, pedigree of player to come to the U.S. because the U.S. had players as competitive to match up. Yeah, tell us about one of your most famous players, wasn't he, before World War One? was the amazing Bart King. Yeah. Tell us about him. He took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, so the most prominent of which was John Bart King. Now, along with the gentleman of Philadelphia, John Bart King came out of Philadelphia. He was part of these touring squads, these gentlemen of Philadelphia squads who who uh, come and play in the county season in England. He led the bowling averages one summer in England. I think he averaged around 11 off the top of my head one summer and took 80 odd wickets. I can't remember the exact stats, but I mean, he was, he was a highly respected swing bowler. He was famous. Was he not for, for the so-called angler? He sounds a bit like the, the, the late in swinging Yorker. He, he sounds yeah. a little bit like was he Macram. <laughs> there you go. Mankind. Exactly. And, and people who talk about, the greatest, there's a lot of discussions I get into about it, covering associate cricket and covering USA and Netherlands and Afghanistan and Ireland before they got test status um, and Nepal and UAE and Scotland, these kind of countries. And there's so many discussions about who's the greatest associate player of all time. And people get caught up in the modern argument of, oh, well, uh, Ryan Tendiscata or 
um, you know, Karam Khan from the UAE or, you know, modern players now, Kyle Kutcher, Cal McLeod, Paris Kodka of Nepal. And people from America and Canada who were kind of in the know historically always kind of put the brakes on the conversation and say, hold on a second. There, you know, there is no conversation. It ends with John Bar King. You guys are forgetting we had somebody back at the, you know, start of the 20th century who was the Bradman of associate cricket, essentially. What they say, don't they, is that the basically the U.S. team before World War One, the U.S. cricket team, was was capable of taking on on more or less equal terms, you know, the English or the Australian team of the era. Absolutely. And and so the fact that they were denied in formal capacity you know, outside of, um, I guess, what could be characterized as gentlemanly touring squads, and you didn't have formal test matches or international matches that were, you know, deemed test status because they were not part of the, the trio of Imperial Cricket Conference teams at the time. Um, that that exclusion really set USA on a path, an alternate path uh, forever after. I mean, if USA had test status in 1900 and, and you know, the, it was playing against the West Indies and against England and Australia and then South Africa afterwards throughout the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, through to modern day, there's no reason to think that USA would not have won World Cups by now and would not be on equal footing or near equal footing with the modern day, uh, you, know, you know, World Cup, you know, ODI era, uh, West Indies and Australia and England and Indian teams. And it's uh, that, that fateful decision-making of, of the exclusion of, of the USA. And, and you're going to make the same argument about Canada as well, um, mm. to an extent, you know, um, that really... And maybe Argentina, because you're, that's within the kind of uh, American continent. I was gonna th- I was gonna throw them up there as well. They've they've got first class matches in their records in in the you know the eighteen late eighteen hundreds and and nineteen hundreds for people yeah who are not familiar that uh, a lot of there was a large contingent of uh, English workers and migration to help build the railways in Argentina and that contributed to the growth of the cricket community initially there. But they had some they have an outstanding cricket history there and the clubs there have a rich history. The Belgrano Club. Um, at at the top of my mind is is a, is one with rich history, more than a hundred years of history in Argentina. It's exactly, same thing. So all these these countries who were excluded, um, if they were included, if if that if that kind of very very haughty like tone of of you know this this posh we're we're better than you, you're beneath us kind of um, attitude wasn't. In existence for cricket in that in that time. It's amazing what you're saying because actually you're conjuring up an alternative reality where, <laughs> but for a decision by a bunch of sort of MCC grandees at Lords in the um, in 1909, uh, you would now have a cricketing firmament which embraced great nations with great cricketing histories: Canada, uh, United States, Argentina. The world would be a very different place. And, of course, cricket would be quite a substantially different sport because America is so powerful and so, such access to such funds and such uh, media power that I'm going to say the game of cricket itself would have been different. 
And I never buy into the argument that the, that there's too many sports for in the USA for cricket to have an established competitive team, whether that's in modern times or in a hundred years ago times. Uh, you know, if anything, that supports the counter argument that there's so many sports and that there's such a thriving sports culture that there's all the more reason why cricket had the capacity to develop its own kind of elite athletes to represent America, just like every other sport has baseball, basketball, football, hockey, whatever. And it's a shame that that didn't eventuate because all you have to do is look at the example of John Bart King. If he was a world-class player in the 1910s and USA and these gentlemen of Philadelphia teams were just as competitive against the, the English and Australian touring squads that would come through, then there's no reason why there could not have been dozens and dozens and dozens of John Bart Kings for subsequent generations to come if the mm. USA hadn't been excluded in that, in that manner. Tell me, um, Peter, it's such a fascinating question, so pregnant with significance for the history, for the future of cricket. What are the prospects of a the emergence of a, an, an American national team, a test team which can compete internationally? Well, I think that ship has sailed, unfortunately. I, I think it would be wonderful if it happened. I, I love test cricket. That's how I first got into the game myself by watching the Ashes in 2005. So, I, again, I, I just completely deny any argument that test cricket is too long or too boring or too complicated for Americans to understand and that only 2020 cricket will be possible for converting Americans into cricket. The the duration argument that, that's given about, yeah, test cricket is too long, it's too boring, it goes on for five days. It, uh, I, I defy that with my own experience. There's so many other anecdotal experiences I've, I've come across with people I've met in traveling through cricket, other Americans whose first encounters with cricket or test cricket. They love it, and it's because it's unique. The whole argument of, oh, Americans will only get into cricket through T20 cricket because their attention span is too short, and T20 cricket is like baseball, and it's three hours, and it's compact, and Americans will love it. If I wanted to watch something that was three hours and that's like baseball, guess what I would watch? Baseball. I don't want a cheap imitation knockoff. I want the real McCoy. And for me, the real McCoy in cricket, the most unique selling point is test cricket. And if people have the attention span in an American sports culture for sitting through four days of golf tournaments, uh, watching the Masters and mm, watching Tiger Woods and so many other golfers, and they can you know, get up for an, a 9 a.m. tea time or, or 8 a.m. tea time, whatever, and then watch all the golfers on the course until 6 o'clock in the afternoon for four days in a row, there's, there's no reason why they can't have the same attention span for cricket. I, just, I, 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 I don't buy into that argument that, it's too long and too boring and any other claims that are made. But from an administrative standpoint, USA Cricket, the governing body, has made their intentions clear. They want to apply for full membership. They want the equal privileges that the test nation is due, but without the infrastructure requirements. So they've said the ship has sailed on test cricket. Whatever happened with John Barking 100 years ago, that's great to have as part of our legacy, but... We don't have the infrastructure to support four-day cricket, four-day first-class cricket. We're focused on limited overs cricket domestically and infrastructure-wise. And we want to achieve full member status. They put out a document about this uh, in the past couple months. They want to achieve full member status. They want the same rights as Australia and India has at, in administrative capacity within the ICC. But they don't want the have they they don't want to have the cost 
and time investment burning a hole in their wallet to try and establish a first class structure, in part because the, the recent evidence is there of what has happened to Ireland. Ireland, I think they had this, this outdated notion in their mind of, of what test status would bring and the prestige it would bring. And in reality, achieving test status for Ireland has brought more problems than solutions because they were told by the ICC a decade ago, if you want to move on from upsetting Pakistan in the World Cup in 2007 and go on to test status, well, you need to fill out X, Y, and Z requirements. You need to establish a first-class structure. You need to do get more grounds and do this and that. And you need to be able to host test matches. And now that they've got test status, have, having hosted Pakistan in their first test, they burned a huge hole in their wallet hosting that match. The staging fees and the infrastructure costs to, to build up a temporary facility every time they have to do that at Malahide. And they have actually canceled test matches that were in the FTP since then and have uh, restructured those tours as T20s or ODIs because there's no appetite financially in Ireland for test cricket. And, and the first class structure that they've had, the interprovincial competition that they've had to set up to justify test status, again, it's, it's, it's burning a hole in their pocket. There's no, they can't generate any revenue out of it. So actually it, it kind of pursuing quote, quote, traditional test pe- uh, status per se, it's an albatross for a lot of associate countries. And it, it's really going to weigh them down uh, financially if, if they really want to go that route. And the more prudent option even though from a developmental standpoint, in, in the traditional sense, technically you're going to develop better technically skilled players by making them play in a four-day or first-class structure. From a financial standpoint, it's completely irresponsible in a sense uh, to, to kind of demand that out of players when you're just, you're just going to be wasting money, wasting money, money, wasting money. And if you're going to be more prudent, looking at the example that Ireland has said, uh, where they've lost a hell of a lot of money by, by trying to, to check the box of meeting the test cricket criteria. USA has seen this. Scotland has seen this. I think not, Netherlands has seen this. Other countries at the associate level are waking up to this, and they're asking the ICC, and the ICC is starting to change their guidelines to say, if you want full member status, full member status going forward doesn't necessarily mean test status. We w- may give you the full member status privileges and uh, financial payments and distributions that ICC members get without needing to play test cricket because there's just no money in it, unfortunately. And, and, that's, and that's not unique to the associate countries. You guys know full well, you look around the world, outside of England, where you're still getting full houses, b- before the pandemic anyway, and Australia, and maybe you could argue India, you look at uh, to other countries around the world, nobody's showing up to test matches. It, it's, it's a huge financial burden and a certain loss for West Indies to host a test match for four days or Sri Lanka to host a test match even South Africa to host a test match. And for the country like USA coming forward, lo- looking at it and, and trying to be as cost efficient as possible, there's no, there's no point in having this outdated ambition of test cricket, even though it would be wonderful to go cover a test match or play a test match. I, I fully enjoyed a couple years ago when I covered USA uh, play Canada in the Audi Cup, the traditional Audi Cup rivalry where they played a two-day match. It was a wonderful experience to cover, but I was one of about five people in the ground uh, nobody else was there to enjoy it as much as you, I did. You make a you make a very powerful. <laughs> That's a very important point. What sort of but what what did that um, Aldi match get any um, coverage on television? 
What was it, did it have? What was its television? If it did, what was its television? They audience? had a web stream, but again, the web stream it was a free web stream, and I don't think it had more than three hundred or four hundred viewers at oh, any given time. Okay, it's, it sounds, Peter, as though um, the short form game is the United States' best hope of progress uh, in cricket. Can you tell us particularly what uh, do you think are the America's prospects of co-hosting the? T, uh, T20 uh, World Cup, uh, which is imminent, uh, co-hosting it with the West Indies. And even more excitingly, um, what are the prospects of that cricket might be an event at the Los Angeles Olympics? The biggest obstacle for both of those very lofty ambitions is just infrastructure. The lack of grounds, uh, lack of facilities. There's this uh, this fantasy dreamland that Cricket Australia, former Cricket Australia CEO James Sutherland was living in a couple of years ago where he was quoted in either the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age saying, oh, we can have a Cricket World Cup played in New York City with a pop-up stadium in Central Park. And that sounded wonderful, I'm sure, to people in Australia. I'm, I'm not sure anybody in Aust- uh, New York City had any clue that uh, there would be any plan to host a pop-up match in, in Central Park. And I think one of his quotes or examples was to justify it with some nonsensical thing about well paul simon back in the early 90s he had a hundred thousand people at a concert in central park so if paul simon can have a big concert why can't u.s cricket have a pop-up stadium and like well people in new york city love paul simon the the average person who's going through their jog through central park i don't really think they care as much about cricket as they care about paul simon (laughs) so from an infrastructure standpoint there's there's no permanent facilities You'll ground the country, permanent facilities, stadium-type facilities. You've got the one in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which has hosted T20 Internationals since 2010. Uh, you've got the one that you mentioned at the start, Grand Prairie, Texas. They're, they're a minor league baseball stadium that they're trying to convert into a, a cricket stadium. In Los Angeles, where the Hollywood Cricket Club is, you've got the Woodley uh, Park cricket fields in Van Nuys, which – they're basically four four cricket fields. They're very nice fields, but they're akin to your common UK local cricket club. There's no there's there's no stands. There's no field, uh, facilities there. It's literally just a field with a boundary, and you bring your folding we, chair, your lawn we chair. We played them. Did we played. Yeah, them? yeah. A very nice place, hmm. but it's not suitable for hosting. I don't think you could host Olympic uh, caliber cricket there. Um, so infrastructure is, is is the major obstacle, and um, how how can infrastructure be built that's going to be sustainable is issue number two, uh, and in embedding the cricket and and enmeshing that in the cricket community. One of the 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 points that keeps getting brought up to to justify this ambition of hosting a cricket World Cup or cricket in the Olympics in the U.S in Los Angeles or again in cricket world cup with multiple venues around the country is, Oh, well, you know, again, going back to 15 million, 20 million cricket fans, so many cricket fans around the country, 200,000 players, blah, 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 blah. And Oh my God, look at the ratings, the TV rights, the cricket info traffic gets through the roof. You wouldn't believe it. Oh, it's amazing. And if they had India versus Pakistan in New York city, they would have 50,000 people. They would sell it out five times. So it would be amazing. Blah, 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 blah. And this kind of the same rambling rhetoric was used when they had that Shane Warren, Sachin Tendulkar All Stars tour. Oh, you bring Sachin Tendulkar to New York City, you're gonna fill out 
City Field. You're going to fill out Dodger Stadium. You're going to fill out the, the Minute Maid Park in Houston. It's got to be incredible. Well, guess what? Those stadiums were half empty. I went to those games when Sash and Tendulkar came with Chain Warren. They were empty. And at Dodger Stadium, where they had the largest crowd, I think, of 20,000 people, more than half of those tickets were given away for free because the stadium was going to be so embarrassingly empty in a 55,000-seat stadium. They didn't want the t- TV cameras to show on just scores of empty seats. So they, the t- tickets that were priced at $250 ahead, 20, 24, 48 hours before the event, they were literally giving them away hand over fist to anybody who was was um, a warm body with blood pumping who would, who would be willing to show up in the seats. Um, so that is evidence to counter it. Uh, the India matches that have been played in Florida, yes, those sold out. They had 12,000, 15,000 people to those games. But again, this argument of, oh, if you had India, Pakistan, it would sell out five times over. That's, that's true. If you did have India, Pakistan, and uh, India and Pakistan playing in New York, it would sell out five times over. Guess what? If you had Indian Pakistan at Lourdes, it would sell out five times over. If you had Indian Pakistan at the SCG or the MCG, it would sell out five times over there too. But just like at those venues in Australia and England during World Cup matches, the issue is not whether India and Pakistan is going to sell out. The issue is if you put Ireland against Zimbabwe in Texas, is that going to get more than 500 people? If you put Sri Lanka versus South Africa in Chicago, is that going to get more than 500 people? If, if you put New Zealand against Afghanistan in Los Angeles, is that going to get more than 500 people? And the answer is, is no. At the moment, this, the South Asian community is, is really what's sustaining cricket everywhere around the world. USA is not unique to that. And until or unless you establish true grassroots development in the U.S. and really engage the community, Fort Lauderdale has proven to be a really regrettable kind of uh, project in some senses because outside of those indie games, a lot of the games have struggled to draw people. The Caribbean Premier League started off really encouraging in 2016 when they first hosted games in the U.S. They had 10,000 people sell out the first year. The crowds kept going south. They went down to 5,000 the next year. Then in the third year, they had 2,000 for the first match with Trinidad and Tobago. And then the final match of the three matches they hosted in Florida in the 2018 season, you had Andre Russell with the Jamaica Tallawas against Steve Smith of the Barbados Tridents, two of the two of the the most high-profile players in world cricket, playing in front of 700 people in Florida on a on a weeknight. And I I know there were 700 people because I was able to count them, hand count them. I went around the stadium and counted them. It was such a small crowd you could pick out the people. And it took me 15 minutes across three overs. To count them, it was it was such a, a sad scene, and you could hear the players chatting out in the middle. The chat in the middle was echoing to the seats because the stadium was so empty and so silent. And you don't want that to be the scene that is projected to the world if you host a World Cup or an Olympic event on U.S. soil under the premise of this is going to really make the game explode and this is going to be what, what really makes cricket go mainstream. In reality, all the evidence that we've seen so far is that, yeah, when India plays World Cup matches in the U.S., those are going to sell out, but good luck for anything else. And, and until that changes, it's going to be hard to really make cricket a sustainable venture, no matter if it's Olympics or World Cup or anything else. Peter, it's, um, it's been a fascinating discussion with you and a, um, but a slightly depressing one. Um, those of us hoping that the United States... It's going to become paradise regained for cricket. Uh, I've got a lot to think about. You talked about the lack of infrastructure. 
You talked about um, the fragmentation of the um, American cricketing public and American um, cricket players. You've talked about um, lofty ambitions not matched by a, um, a sort of long-term plan to um, provide a, a professional structure for American cricket. A great deal to think about. Um, but um, thank you very much uh, indeed for joining us from your outpost in Manchester. Um, perhaps you'll come back for a second inning sometime because there's so much more to discuss. But for now, um, thank you for joining us and um, we hope for better times for American cricket. Well, Richard, there's only there's only one place to go from all the things I described, and that's up. <laughs> ah, that's, well, that's a very American attitude, yes. And so maybe that will carry American cricket through. I have to say that uh, it's uh, I find all of that rather heartbreaking. I do think it was a historical wrong turning, as Peter, you argued so beautifully and so eloquently, uh, the 1909 moment when cricket, the cricket world took, turned its back on America and we're paying a price because we need America. Thank you so much. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in South East London. And goodbye from me, Peter Oborn, in Wiltshire. <laughs>